What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 locked. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 118, and we'll be talking about Stargate SG-1's episode, Allegiance. 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 This is an independent podcast. You can help keep this thing independent if you wish. I say that every time, and I even rewrote it. If you'd like to support the show I wrote and should read, you can do that at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. If I just read my notes, it's fine. Uh, there's, There's privileges and perks and tears and votes and things and zach is going to get into it a bit uh but that's where you can find uh some choice things that we do on patreon first we always put our content on the main feed as well um but uh people who support us on patreon get some of these uh episodes right away we got some good ones on there that uh we're going to be releasing a new uh another other side of the gate i think next weekend fourth of july weekend um Mm-hmm. I think, uh, but uh, we got a couple of those episodes that you can listen to like right now. We got another second chances coming out here soon. We just recorded uh, one last night. Right? Uh-huh. That's right. So pretty good stuff there. You can get access to that at patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. And uh, if you don't want to, uh, if you just don't want to do that on principle or, or, or any other reason, um, have no fear. You will always be able to find our content advertiser free, except for that spate that we had there at the beginning where we had like, you know, the the tactical tent or whatever as a sponsor or the Mochello's personality switcher. Um, those are good times. Those anyway, good times. Uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> can, that's going into the Wayback Machine. That's, there, yes, right? that's right. <laughs> you can uh, find our stuff everywhere. You know, you, you, dear listener, have already known how to find us. You found us. But if somebody asks you, where can I find that? You can say it's on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts and podcast aggregators. All you have to do is search for Walking Through the Stargate and you'll find us. Indeed. So, uh, unfortunately, I have put Zach into a pickle. Um, I am, once again, running on a tight schedule. So, we're going to have to be zippy zippy do. Uh, but, Zach... If yes. somebody wants to let us know clever ways that we can get this show in under an hour regularly, how might they reach out and let us know that? Uh, well, if you want to talk to us about anything about the podcast and our timing and lack of timing and all of that stuff, uh, you can do that by emailing us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com, which is just like it's spelled. You can also go to Twitter at Stargate Walking or Facebook, Walking Through the Stargate Facebook page and group or the website, WTTS.space, space, space, or WalkingThroughTheStargate.com. Of course, Patreon, Other Side of the Gate, Stargate Second Chances, all of those fun things. Uh, those Patreon supporters, you can expect in the next couple of days, as soon as Brett finishes editing it, a new yeah. Second Chances episode coming yes. into your ear holes. Ear holes. Now, I just realized, Zach, that I implied that this episode needs to clock in at under an hour and that's not true (laughs) (laughs) that's that's not what we need today uh though though if we do get way rambly then that's going to butt up against things so um we're fine we're good but anyway okay i'm just trying to help you out and speed through these things as fast as i can great it's great this is wonderful i'm very thankful for it i appreciate that should should i do things stoically i mean you can if you want it's just that we're not going to have time for anything else Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so we should probably move into the background facts of this episode then. Uh, yeah, I guess we're ready to dive. Wow, man, three minutes and forty six seconds for an intro. I know. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> Louise. I think the last time we did that was our uh, was our pilot episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. In any case, this yeah, episode. Let's talk about it. 
Oh, wait, Go no. Stoically. This episode is written by uh, Peter DeLuise, and the director of this episode is Peter DeLuise. Ooh. This is the fourth directing credit of seven for Peter this season, Descent, Nightwalkers, and Shadow Play. As far as his teleplay, this is his only writing credit this season. But as you know, he has written many other things in mm-hmm. previous seasons and will continue to write occasionally as the series progresses. Mm-hmm. I am not going to continue talking like this. Yeah, no, boring. that's just not our that's not our style. But we do have guest actors in this episode. And yes, we have we actually do. a whole host of guest actors in this episode. We have Carmen Argenziana, uh, Argenziano as... Jacob Carter slash Selmac. We see yep. both of them in this episode. Yes, we do. And he's awesome. We have Tony Amendola, who plays mm-hmm. Braytech. Mm-hmm. It is not Ricardo Montalban. No, it is it not. It might be F. Murray Abraham, but it's not either of them. It's Tony Amendola. Yes. Uh, incidentally, this is the first time we have seen both Jacob and Braytech in the same episode at the same time. Yeah, I guess so. Just saying. Just saying. Yeah, that was good. Uh, we have Terrell Rothery here as Dr. Janet Frazier. She shows up for this episode. Obi Indefo, who plays mm-hmm. Ragnar, returns mm-hmm. in this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's a great actor and great guy to have back. But, uh, we have Peter Stebbings, who comes into this episode and plays Malik. Mm-hmm. He's a native of British Columbia, Vancouver. Uh, born in 1971, he's mm-hmm. probably best known in Canada for his role in the TV series Madison um, that aired in the mid-90s originally. Mm-hmm. Um, other shows that he's been in uh, include Traders, Jeremiah. He was doing Jeremiah at the time this episode aired, and he was able to pop over here and do this as a little guest spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Never Cry Wolf, uh, the crime mystery drama Rabbit Fall. Crash and Burn, uh, Murdoch Mysteries, the crime drama The Listener. I'm gonna well. d- I'm gonna correct you because I think it's important. Never Cry Wolf is a great movie from 1983-ish or so, and uh, he was in Never Cry Werewolf. Oh, Never Cry Werewolf. I just uh, missed my uh, words there. It's written. There. That's okay. I just didn't say it right. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. Yeah, you're welcome. Because for um, a minute, I'm like, he was a Never Cry Wolf? I'm like, no, no, he wasn't. No, no, Never Cry Werewolf in 2008. Yes. Um, he wrote and directed the film Defender in 2009, hmm. which starred Woody Harrelson and Kat Dennings. Okay, nice. Um, he has appeared in episodes of two different television series with Terrell Rothery, where the main hmm. character's base of operations was Cheyenne Mountain. Oh, really? Uh, so, so both Stargate SG One and Jeremiah apparently have a connection to Cheyenne Mountain, uh, and then they were both in that. Interesting. So. Oh, that's fun. And Brent, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in 1996, yeah. Peter Stebbings, what played the character of Jimmy in the episode Blackout of the series mm. Kung Fu: The Legend Continues. <laughs> We just can't get away from it. We can't. There it is. I've, right. And I've made the promise several times of like wanting to find this show and watch it. I, I haven't done that. And I the same thing either. that I haven't done the grilled cheese recipe either. I, I'm going to do it. I'm totally going to do it. It's totally happening. The I other day, you. I was actually sitting there thinking about what things I needed to have for the grilled cheese sandwich recipe. And then I didn't do it. Oh, boy. Someday. 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 But that day is not this day. The, today is That day is not today. All right. Uh, 
Peter Stebbing's first IMDb credit was way back in 1989 in the TV series Border Town, where mm-hmm. he played the character of Lamar Johnson in the episode Pretty Shadows. Oh, okay. I know nothing about any of that. Nope. The, all those, uh, th- those were words in the English language, but none of them held meaning for me. Now, I'm just, it's just kind of tickling me in the back of the head. Border Town, I wonder. So there was a few episodes in earlier seasons of Stargate where they went on location to a city uh, set. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I think mm-hmm. it was Border Town. That was the same set? That well, it would have been the same sense. set. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, because he's a native of Vancouver. Yeah. That that would stand to reason, yeah. All right. All right, so we have Link Baker, who plays Artok. That's one mm-hmm. of the uh, Jaffa guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Link studied acting at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, or the AADA. Mm-hmm. Uh, he received the Charles Jellinger Award for top acting honors in his graduating class. So good on you, Link. Nice. Um after graduating, he uh, went on to become a member of the Repertory Theater Company in L.A. Mm-hmm. He's a member of the Carcross Tagish First Nation with ancestry from both the Tlingit people of Alaska and the Tagish people of the Yukon and is hmm. a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, now, we actually have seen Link Baker on Stargate before. Mm-hmm. In the episode The Light, mm-hmm. there is a character, Lieutenant Dean Barber, who is struggling with some stuff and he rushes into the kawoosh and dies oh. at the very beginning of the episode. Yeah. And that yeah. is our good friend Link. Gotcha. Yep. Um, his first IMDb credit was Dark Angel, the TV series in 2001, mm-hmm. when he played the character of Sven. Okay. Okay. I remember watching the show. It's a, it's a decent television series for the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't remember Sven specifically. No. No. Uh, we have Rob Lee, who plays Major Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, his role on Stargate is his most significant role that he's had. He's had a few others here and there, but mostly it's just this. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually, this is not the first time he's been on Stargate either. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in The Torment of Tantalus way back in season one. He oh. was one of the scientists in 1945 in that film. Nice. Okay. Uh, that was an uncredited role. He mm-hmm. also played a scientist in The Fifth Race, mm-hmm. uh, also uncredited. Uh, we first see Pierce himself in the episode The First Ones. Okay. And we yep. see him again in 2001. Okay. And we have him in this episode, and we'll see him again a few more times. Very good. Nice. So... Uh, but there's not a whole lot that I could find on Rob Lee himself. His gotcha. first IMDb credit was in the TV series Saint Elsewhere way back in 1986 mm-hmm, when he mm-hmm. played the character of Man on Airplane in the episode <laughs> Out on a Limb. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. I'm a man on airplane. Indeed. I'm here to tell you a very important fact for the show, of course. Of course. Goodbye. You know, most, mostly it's probably like a... Ah. Yes. Or, yes. Oh, hello. Oh, excuse me. Pardon me. Uh, can I sit yes. there, please? That's yes. probably what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, yes, he probably had. Yes, he probably had one speaking line, and it was, "Is that seat taken?" <laughs> <laughs> probably. Now, we have one more actor I want to uh, bring up. His name is Kamani Ray Smith. He plays Ocker, 
This is the Tok'ra who dies there, uh, the, the security guy. Yeah. Uh, he was born in 1972 in Toledo, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is known for his work on Suffer, Fist Fight, and The Butterfly Effect. Mm-hmm. And when you look at his credits, he has a ton mm-hmm. of stunt coordinating work. In fact, mm-hmm. most of his stuff is stunt coordinating stuff. So either he was behind the stage doing stunt work with people or that and then being on stage for a couple of things here or there. He has 153 credits in the stunts section and 57 credits in the acting column. Nice. Uh, His first IMDb credit was in 1990 when he played Gangster. Uh, a gangster, or maybe yes. the, you know, it was an uncredited role. Yes. In Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. Nice. So uh, he got, so he got, he got beat up by a guy in a turtle suit. Almost certainly. Yes. Um, and I'm pretty certain that uh, he was one of the stunt workers behind the stage for a good large chunk of that movie. And then he gets to be on stage as the gangster, probably because the gangster got hit in the face and he had to do some wacky, you know, jump and spin and fall yep. back and, and, and you know, land on something dangerous. Yep. You got it. Yep. So that is Kimani Ray Smith. The original air date for Allegiance was August 9, 2002. Mm-hmm. Number one on the charts is still that boring hot in here by Nelly. <laughs> U.S. Yep. folks from, 19, from 2002, find a new song to listen to. Yeah. Just saying. The U.K. has found a new song to listen to. Ooh, They're okay. Colorblind by Darius. Huh. And incidentally, that is Colorblind with a U. Of course. Because Although I just got British. done um, celebrating Canada so much last week that uh, you'd think that I spelt uh, my favorite. You would think that my favorite spelling of favorite and color uh, and humor. No, that is with a U. Or is it with a U? Whatever. It would be with a U in the whatever. Yeah. I need more coffee. I'm going to have more coffee. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I realized that we started so quickly that I forgot to get additional coffee and I forgot to get additional water. So <laughs> we'll see how well, this goes. Yeah. If we need to, uh, if we need to, to, to have a little pause, then that's fine. I can, or, you know, I can blabber. But anyway, yeah. you probably want to continue with, uh, uh, with you things. know, you know, as we listen to Colorblind in the back. Uh, we realize that there are movies that we're also playing at this time. Yes. I have no witty uh, connection to it, so we have Triple X. Uh, that is oh, a yeah. Vin Diesel movie, yep. not a porn movie. Just saying. Just saying. Um, and Triple X is known for having lots of tattoos all over his body, which is sort mm-hmm. of like signs that mm-hmm. say, this is who I am. Signs is number two. Yep, okay. And, of course, Triple X, I've never actually seen it, but I'm guessing that he was probably some sort of a uh, spy of some sort, and when he was a child, he was definitely a spy kid. Uh, I, I have no idea. I've never seen this. But Spy Kids 2, Island of Lost Dreams. Maybe one of them were dreaming about the signs wow. that lead to Triple uh, X. Yep. Who knows? Yep. Austin Powers in Gold Member was number four, and I don't have no and and Bloodwork is number five, and 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 I've never seen Bloodwork, and I don't know anything about Bloodwork, but there. Yeah, it is. I don't know anything about Bloodwork either. It's interesting. So there you those go. Those are our movies. There are the movies. Those are the movies. All right. Not a whole lot was happening in August of 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not that's especially noteworthy. Um, on August nine. 
Uh, the day this episode aired, the San Francisco Giants outfielder Barry Bonds hits his 600th career home run, ah, which is asterisk. pretty cool. Yep. Uh, yeah, asterisk. Um, on the 10th, <clears throat> New Zealand beats South Africa 30-23 to in uh, Durban to win their fourth Tri-Nations Rugby Series. Hmm. So. Nice. Uh, also on August 10th, the Academy Award-winning actor Nicolas Cage weds the Princess of Rock and Roll, Lisa Marie Presley, oh, that's right. at the Monalani Bay Hotel on the Big Island of Hawaii. Yep, I remember that. I remember that. Um, I don't remember. How long did that marriage last? Not that long. I didn't think so. Uh, and then on August 11th, British Open Women's Golf... Uh, Turnberry Ailsa, the, the Turnberry Ailsa Resort, that's where it was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carrie Webb wins by two strokes from fellow Australian Michelle Ellis and Paula uh, Marty. This is the fifth different major for Webb and uh, career super slam. I uh-huh. don't know enough about golf to know exactly what that means, but that's what uh, big Big golf tournaments, and so career super slam, I guess, means that you know, I guess he's f- five. Fifth oh, I guess if you major, hit yeah. five different majors, then you get a yeah. career Super Sam. That makes yeah. sense. Yep. Cool. All right. We have some trivia for this episode. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, this is the first time we see Braytech and Selmac together in the same episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the plot of this episode has some similarities to the movie Predator, um, which when you think about uh, Peter DeLuise, he is... Uh, very good at stealing ideas from other places <laughs> and making them new. <laughs> yes. Sometimes more new than others. Yes. Um, this I didn't see as a whole lot Predator related. I mean, although I can see the connections. Yeah. Invisible attacker. Yep. Um, the device being used by Major Carter as part of the equipment to counteract the invisibility shield this is at around minute 40 of the episode mm-hmm. is actually a telephone operator's console. Hmm. Uh, possibly a Mitel SX20 attendant console. But oh, yes. Maybe not. Of, of course, the world-famous Mitel SX20 attendant console. Yeah, you know, it's definitely not the 21. No, 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 no. By, at that point, they had a, a completely different six-pin configuration. That, that, that's when they, they completely reoriented everything mm-hmm. and reconfigured mm-hmm. it all. Did you know that when the 21 came out that the uh, the attendants that were responsible for the attendant console had to uh, undergo uh, uh, literally months worth of fabricated training that absolutely didn't happen? You know, I can do you one better. When yeah. the 22 came out, the attendants oh, actually had to have bionic implants into their brain to operate it. Yep, yep, yep. And then they became the 23. The, and, and that's how that's how the 23 came about was because they be, you know it became bionic yeah yeah you know mm-hmm. naturally mm-hmm. um all of this can be counteracted by a wavelength in the 400 to 700 nanometer in the electromagnetic well, that's how spectrum we, that's how we saved them yeah now yeah, now here's the catch though is yeah. that that's actually invisible light spectrum that that's not invisible light spectrum that oh, is visible oh i see i see light. i see um uh it's uh like literally is roughly I, I the see. Yeah, so so 400 to 700 is uh, the visible light spectrum for humans. And mm-hmm. so at a 420 nanometers, um, it would rather, in fact, be kind of a nice uh, blue-violet glow to things. 
and a um, lot of it. And a lot of it, because the intensity was at 50%, and then they ratcheted it up to 100%. Yes. What, what the, that means, I don't know, but it should have been visible, and it wasn't. Yes, but that's okay. It made that's the other okay. person visible. Well, there you go. Um, sure. All right, we'll go with I suppose I could retcon this by saying that what they were actually doing was generating uh, uh, wavelengths out of the Naquita generator that would then, once absorbed by the invisibility field, reflect back at 420 nanometers. Ah, that. So the output is invisible, but once absorbed and reflected back, then it's 420 nanometers. Which would be plausible because when we do see the bad guy, um, he does show up in that kind of light blue, purpley yep. range. Yep. I, Called it. I, I approve your retcon and uh, give you a cookie. <laughs> if hey, I had ooh, a cookie. Hey, nice. Uh, talk cookie. to your daughter. She'll certainly have a cookie for you. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> She will She will have had a cookie and said, I ate your cookie. And I'll be like, that's fine. That's exactly what I meant. She will have had a cookie for you. <laughs> Is that not that how was that's terrible <laughs> and really good. Nice. Nicely done. Exactly. All right. Ooh, um, I see that we're at the end of our bullet points, but where was Peter DeLuise in this episode? I did not see him. I didn't see him either. He must have been in the crowds at one point. Um, yeah. So it was interesting that there were, they had about 40 extras for this mm -hmm. episode, which is like eight times more than they normally have. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were several scenes where the, the people that were behind our heroes uh, were also the people in front of our heroes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because in um, order to get a crowd of 160, you need to, you got to film them twice. Yep. Um, also, it's interesting to note that uh, many of the extras who were there for uh, the Warrior, when we saw the Free Jaffa for the first time, yeah, uh, were still available and were in this episode as well. Nice. So many That's of those extras were the same. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I got another retcon for why uh, the why we seem to be seeing the same people behind our heroes and in front of them. Oh uh, yeah. Twins. Lots of twins. Lots of twins. Triplets. Quintuplets. Oh, there we go. Multiple birth. The multiple oh. birth solution. Clones. Clones. How could I have seen? How could I not have seen that? You know, Obviously, if you had had that uh, Mitel SX22 model yes. implanted in your brain, yes. you would have seen it. it I, yes. In the 420 nanometer light spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It would have yep. been a little bit purpley. So, That's all right. this episode, the title in other languages. Yeah. The French call it Unity is Strength. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Italians, Allegiance. The Spanish, Loyalty. The Czech, mm -hmm. Unity. And the Germans and Hungarians both call it Alliance. Okay. Okay. So nothing terribly exciting there, but there it is. There it is. And I wonder if the French title is like, uh, like a saying in French national culture, right? Like that's kind of that that mm. that's that seems to have one of those things about it. Like, you know, if if a if a French uh, viewer saw that the title was "Unity is Strength," they would be like, "Yeah, that's what's on our flag," or whatever. I don't know. There's nothing on their flag. You know, there is colors, something but. with that that um, that suggests a cultural touch point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, within French culture, that would connect with the idea of allegiance. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yep. Cool. All right. Shall we synopsize this? We shall synopsize it. Yeah, whatever. Good. We're, let's get going. Okay, here we go. Yes. On another world, O'Neill, Carter, and Teal, along with several other members of the SGC, including Dr. Fraser, as well as Braytac and a bunch of Jaffa, are in the middle of an emergency. Several Tok'ra are fleeing through the gate. Major Pierce reports to O'Neill that there was no warning. The Tok'ra base was under attack by Anubis warriors. Oh no! And now they are seeking refuge at the Alpha site. That was their only option. Jacob comes through the gate and gets hit by a blast in his leg. Just as he is stepping through, but it's okay. He's a Tok'ra. He'll be alright. It'll be fine. But even though Jacob will be fine, the relationship between the Free Jaffa and the Tok'ra is already strained, to say the least. Neither side really trusts the other, and O'Neill and the SGC are caught in the middle. Several Tok'ra died during the attack. At the Stargate, they hold a funeral service where the bodies of the dead are consumed by the kawush of the gate. Before the service was, com- was completed, however, a fight breaks out between Artok, who is a free Jaffa, and Akur, who is a Tok'ra leader. Artok apparently said something at a time when no one was supposed to be speaking, and so Ocker naturally shut him up by punching him in the face. I- I'm guessing it was the face. He just punched him. We don't know. We just saw him on the ground. Anyway, suffice it to say, the two do not like each other. A sentiment that is shared in some capacity on all sides of the Jaffa and Tok'ra. Later, Carter discovers, this is uh, Sam Carter, not Jacob Carter, discovers Mm -hmm. that someone tried to sabotage a Nakwood generator. The resulting overload would have set off an explosion destroying the entire base. That's a bad thing. O'Neill deduces that there is likely a spy among them. Could it be one of the Tok'ra that sought refuge at the Alpha site? SG-1 reports to Hammond on Earth. No one should enter or leave the Alpha site until this matter is settled, which means, Jonas, you need to stay at home for this episode. With the base locked down, it's time to start interviewing people to see if they can find the spy. The Tok'ra brought with them a Zaytark detector, and with it they can discover deception. They begin with the Tok'ra. None are found to be deceptive, which is ironic because Tok'ra are literally spies, but that's beside the point. Next up on the list, the <laughs> Jaffa. Braytac is not happy that the Jaffa should be tested. The very nature of this device questions one's honor. Or it confirms one's honor, depending on which side of things you look at. But... Before this process can begin, Ocker is found dead. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Another death at the end of an act. He clearly attacked. He was clearly attacked and murdered. The Jaffa Artok immediately becomes suspect numero uno and is brought in for questioning. He claims that he did not kill Ocker, but there is clearly some element of deception in him for the light begins glowing red. Oh no. <gasps> Artok is taken to the brig and locked up. Still, Braytek does not believe any Jaffa killed Ocker. The attack was from behind. Jaffa would have the honor to look a person in the eye before killing them. Naturally. Naturally. Concern is heightened when not too much longer after that, Artok himself is discovered dead in his cell. Someone stabbed him in the front. Something is happening here, and it's not good. The Jaffa don't trust the Tok'ra. The Tok'ra don't trust the Jaffa. And Jack doesn't really trust the, Jaffa, the Tok'ra either, but uh, he does like Jacob. 
He likes Jacob. The two sites nearly explode into an all-out fight as they continue to lob insults and accusations at each other, pointing weapons of destruction at each other as well. The tense scene only resolves itself when Braytek notices footprints running away from the base and into the forests of Vancouver. <laughs> I mean, the forest. Of the planet, Vancouver. Of the planet, where the Alpha site is on. Which is Wouldn't not- it be funny... If the Alpha site was actually just another place on Earth and they're all like, we're totally on another planet. Totally. This is not another it planet. It would really defeat the purpose of having an Alpha site if it was on the same planet as Earth. It's meant to be a ruse. Ah. A cunning plan. Okay. So the Tok'ra leader Malik asks whether the footprints are Tok'ra or Jaffa, but Braytek cannot determine which it is. Oh, time for a head count. They get everybody together and they count their heads and they realize that all personnel on the base are present. Everybody's there. No one is missing. Woohoo! We aren't killing each other. Yay! The Tok'ra <laughs> don't need to constantly blame the Jaffa and the Jaffa don't need to constantly blame the Tok'ra. We can all live happily ever after together. We can now start to rebuild trust and relationships. Of course, we also have a spy and an assassin in the woods. And so we're going to have to go and find him or her. Mm-hmm. They split into groups of three, a Tok'ra, a Tauri, and a Jaffa, walking to the forest. <laughs> and they begin and their the search. the bartender says, this isn't a joke. <laughs> That's how I introduced our Facebook post yesterday for comments. Oh, did you? I did. <laughs> or something very similar to that. Yeah, nice. I, I wanted to make some sort of Pledge of Allegiance joke, and Julie's like, yeah, that's not going to fly well. And I'm nope. like, yeah, you're probably right. So yep. I came up with a different alternative. Yes. Which is what an alternative is. But you came up with even a different one on the top a of that. A different, yeah. different alternative. Yeah, exactly. Right. In any case, in groups of three, they begin their search. During the search, Teal discovers one of the search parties dead. Oh, no. Someone killed mm-hmm. all three members of that team, a Tok'ra, a Tauri, and a Jaffa, and dragged all of their bodies to one place where Teal found them. Drat! Mm-hmm. We don't know where mm-hmm. they went or where they came from or any of that stuff. However, not long after that, Braytek and Malik and O'Neill are attacked by an invisible assailant. O'Neill is far enough away that he does not see what happens next. Braytek seems to have some sort of sixth sense that this guy is there and pushes Malik aside at the last minute and then proceeds to fight with the invisible foe without much success because how do you hit something you can't see? Bang! Bang! Braytek is beaten and then yanked through the, the brush as Malik watches on in disbelief. He turns tail and he runs to O'Neill informing him that Braytek has been killed. Mm-hmm. Tilk is not especially pleased with Malik's cowardice. He expresses his displeasure by giving Malik a rather vigorous hug with his hands around his <laughs> neck. <laughs> a vigorous hug with his hands around his neck. <laughs> Malik's face is turning red, and he's not especially excited to be the recipient of this particular Jaffa hug. <laughs> Jacob implores Teal'c to release his grip on Malik, that Braytek would not want him to kill the Tok'ra. Stop, Teal'c, please, stop. But 
Jack reluctantly agrees with Jacob and invites Teal'c to let him go, and Teal'c finally releases Malik from the hug. Suffice it to say, this has not helped the Tok'ra cause in the eyes of the Jaffa. Now, Malik tells everybody that the foe that they are looking for is in fact an invisible foe. Could it be an Ashrak that's invisible? Nearty? Probably not Nearty. Nearty wouldn't work with... Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... Now we have to figure out how to find this guy. Malik talks to Sam, and Sam talks to Malik, and they figure out if they do the one thing to the one thing and push the one thing and spin the other thing and connect it to the other thing with an Akita generator, they can make the invisible visible. Woohoo! Woo! Science technobabble stuff. Everyone gathers at the base once again. O'Neill instructs pretty much everyone to stand by the gate, guarding it. No one, and I mean no one, gets through that gate! Malik, Sam, and Jacob do their sciency sciency thing, and they get the generator decloaking device up and running with the 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 the, the thing from the telephone people and the attendants and all of that stuff. <laughs> and and then the Ashrak attacks, and in the chaos, at least one Tokra is hit by friendly fire, and Major Pierce's GDO was taken. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, that that was yes, bad news. Bad news. This only heightens the tension and the need to take this assassin out. Finally, the decloaking field is ready, and ooh, it's all tingly, and it reveals the enemy. There's fighting. The Ashrak disappears again. There's a giant gun and some shooting. There's another attack by the Ashrak. He's visible again. Eh, mostly, kind of, sort of. He's going to attack O'Neill and Malik, but before he can strike, he's struck in the back with a staff blast. And another. The assassin falls. He falls to the ground, and we finally see the one shooting. It's Braytac! He's alive! The dead Braytac has now saved Malik not once, but twice. And Malik realizes it. And he thanks the Jaffa for saving him not once, but twice, and hopes that one day he will be able to return the favor. They grasp each other's forearms in a sign of camaraderie and respect. Braytac then takes the Ashrak's blade, the one that killed both Tok'ra and Jaffa, and Tauri alike, and states that it did what everyone else could not. It brought them together. And in a dramatic moment, he tosses the blade into the sand as the episode ends. The end. The end. So, Brent. Yeah. Allegiance. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? This is a good one. Now, this was a good one... Because I like the stories that have a bit of a political aspect to it, little p, political aspect to it. Mm-hmm. The story of how do groups of people collaborate and how do they figure out how to do something together. Uh, it's easy-ish in a story to create a structure that assumes that everybody has agreed to do something in common. It helps move the story along. It uh, gives the writer the chance to actually like tell something about events rather than tell something about people. Uh, I like stories about people, and I like stories about events too. But like I, but I also like stories about people. And so, uh, seeing the situation and how our characters, our beloved characters, and how these other characters engage with each other and navigate the tensions that are present, uh, I found was pretty great. Um, one thing that I wasn't particularly thrilled about was the shift that happened midway through the episode when, for the first half of the episode, it was all about the interpersonal tensions that were being uh, 
that that were that were being felt and on display between the leadership and the uh, groups of people at the Alpha site. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked that there was a lot riding on, you know, there, there was a lot riding on this moment. Like being in the Alpha site, put the pressure up. Um, you know, the, the that there is uh, even a whiff of deception uh, is very, um, uh, it's dangerous to the survivability of that alpha site. Like it has to be sacredly secret. Uh, like you have to keep this thing under wraps. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's not going to be a good place to be. And so those political tensions then had a bit more oomph to it. Um, that the episode opened with, you know, the action of fleeing a battle, that it was uh, a failure, that, 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 uh, you know, that this is a setback that, that brought everything together, um, you know, allowed the emotions to be realistic. Uh, it allowed all the characters to be um, not their best selves and to have it be plausible as to what was going on and why that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was liking that uh, as well. Um, particulars of the story, I, I was confused. Uh I I agreed with Malik when uh what was the guy's name uh, second guy that got the lie detector oh what was it um Ocker was the Tokra and Artok was the Jafar Artok Artok when Artok was under the lie detector and it went red and then everyone's like well I mean it could it could it could have been a false positive and uh. Malik was like, y'all were willing to just like, just accept what this thing had to say about like five minutes ago. And I was like, yes, that's right. They were about to just, if there was a red thing on a toker, they'd be like, see, lying, kill him. Um, or I don't know if they would have said kill him. I am being, yes, over the top. But, you know, the, the, that, that, that criticism was valid and I liked that it was brought up. But I was then also a little confused as to what the red thing was. Was it just a false positive? I guess it was, but maybe we're never going to know because... Because uh, our talk uh, was dead not too long after that. But right. um, when it shifted, when the story shifted away from the tensions, uh, the internal tensions into there's clearly an external threat. Um, I wasn't a fan of that move because it immediately released the tension uh, just, just straight away. Uh, th- we, we saw a little bit of it, uh, you know, rattling around. As people discovered and understood that there was an external threat, but uh, the, the the juiciness of this episode was in the internal struggle for me. And when it was released, then the episode got a little more boring. Um, we still had an assassin out there. And we had to find a clever way to f- discover the assassin. We had a fight sequence with an invisible assassin running around beating people up. Then we had our uh, our uh, um, uh, oh shoot! What's that Brazilian martial art thing? Oh man, uh, capoeira. Capoeira. We had our capoeira kids uh, doing their thing again, which came in handy in the fight scene because that meant that they could just spin off the platform and it looked cool. Yep. Um, and you know there was there was it's not like that fight scene was poorly done, and it's not like that it 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 didn't add an element of excitement to it. I mean, it it was fine. It was fine. And then um, the stirring speech by uh uh. Uh, Tony Amendola uh, to bring the groups together in the form of 
that that you know the thing that brings them together is a common enemy, but let that common enemy do more than just bring them in the same space, but actually begin to bo- to form the bonds of elite of alliance with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a good scene. I like that quite a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, so when by the time I got done with the episode, I was like, yeah, that was all right. Um, uh, it, it, for me, it took a bit of a dip there in the beginning of the second half. Like I mentioned, it it gave up. Uh, a little too early for my taste on uh, the 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 holding of the tension between these characters, but it worked out fine and it was a good time. I liked it, mm-hmm. and and I also liked what it was doing for the overall story, though it wasn't doing. Um, didn't feel like this one was doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. It was it was momentous, but it was momentous in cementing what we were already trending toward. Right, so we were already trending toward the Tauri, the Frigifa, and the Tokra working together. We were trending mm-hmm. toward that. Okay, um, and this cements it, so that's good. But it didn't create something that wasn't there before. So in that respect, it wasn't quite didn't quite have as much punch as if there was something being created out of nothing from before. Uh, for at least for me, so I liked what it did with the overall narrative. I liked what it did within the construct of the story. I was very much enjoying. There was that scene between um, Amanda Carter and Richard Dean Anderson where uh, Sam. Wait, did I say Amanda Carter? Um, uh, Amanda Tapping. Um, where <laughs> Sam Carter uh, was explaining what technologically they were going to do. And uh, O'Neill was like, Is it going to turn the invisible? Yes, sir. You could have just said that. Like, just That's tell me enough. that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that That banter. I, I could tell that, that, that I'm. Like eighty percent sure that those lines were originally written full formed with full punctuation, and the two of those actors were able to like make it, you know, turn it into something that was much more believable by interrupting each other and keeping right. it moving. Like yep. you know, like that was a really nice little. That was a great scene right there. Yeah, it was fun. I liked it. Um, but what about you? What'd you think? Uh, you know, I enjoy this episode. I too like the internal strife and tension uh, that is offered. Um, it, it does shift gears pretty quickly in the middle of that. Um, and in the terms of the immediate threat of there's an assassin who's killing people and we got to go, you know, um, I, I can understand the, um, the release of tension. Um, but we also see that even with that, there is not like... Things aren't all hunky dory all of a sudden, even then. True. And mm-hmm. you get that when uh, Malik runs away and Teal nearly strangles him to death. Um, which, yeah, I'm not certain I approve of Teal's behavior, but I can at least understand where he's coming from, uh, especially when you think of him as a Jaffa and the cultural sensibilities. That yeah, and his and his beloved uh, his beloved teacher is dead. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have just killed the person who means is um, definitely in the top five of the most important people in Teal'c's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and maybe in the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, you know, this is significant. There, um, I like the humanness that we see in this. Uh, you know, we see that uh, O'Neill specifically is is a character who doesn't much like the Tok'ra. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has recently had a very bad experience with the Tok'ra, and that is definitely um, affecting the way he processes things. And then you see him have a really, really bad day where he lets his internal monologue out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what he says. Something like, yeah, how's that working for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it was when uh, Malik is like, you guys should be thankful for us because we've been doing this for a thousand plus years. Yeah. And, you know, we've been, and, you know, it just, uh, it, there, there is some truth in those words um, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also was not something said that actually helps build trust and community um and just just that coming out of o'neill and then his immediate response to like ugh Mm -hmm. uh i just really appreciate that and and rda did a great job of acting that scene out um uh you know i I am fairly so i like how this episode um one of the things this episode and you kind of mentioned this it it is building things further right so we've we've heard about the Jaffa and the free Jaffa developing. And then they had that whole thing with, uh, Imhotep and it didn't go as well as they hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't really heard much about them since then. And now we get to see that, uh, the, the Tauri have kind of taken them under their wing and is providing them a place of sanctuary and safety where they can kind of get their, get back on their feet. Um, and we have seen in several episodes, the Tokra get their butts handed to them. Again mm-hmm. and again and again, and and now they too are being forced to um, receive help and accept help from uh, the Tauri, which has got to be really tough for a very proud and sometimes arrogant race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these things are building. These aren't like monumental leaps forward, like you said. They're just kind of. Uh, let's just kind of recognize that these things are progressing forward. Um, and I like that bit of world building that that uh, is not uh, a giant leap, but just a steady step forward um, that you can definitely see that things are moving forward without having to take a giant leap. And I think this is actually one done that uh, Peter did quite well in this episode in, in writing it, that he crafted a story that that moves all this forward without mm-hmm. feeling like it's a, okay, and now we're going to have the scene yeah. where yeah. our meta-narrative is moving forward. Right. Um, you know, and uh, uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, then there were a couple of scenes with him and Jacob when they're talking about J- uh, uh, O'Neill's experience with the Tok'ra and with Kanan. Um, I really appreciated that scene. Uh, it it uh, helped us see where O'Neill is coming from. Um, it humanized the Tok'ra in a way. Uh, like It's really easy to not like Malik and to not like Ocker. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of see where they're coming from and all of this stuff, but it's really easy to like, right? Don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jacob is that one that's like, he is very clearly a Tok'ra. Um, and he understands and he gets that position and that place and he will back the Tok'ra up. At the same time, he's also a human uh, from the Tauri, which gives him a new look on things. Uh, mm-hmm. And I really liked that interchange. Um, yeah, those are some of the things that I liked 
Um, I didn't like and didn't need the giant gun that O'Neill shot. That oh yeah, was, yeah. That was um, that was superfluous at best. I, I, that that was uh, how much how much time was actually was that like twenty seconds, maybe thirty seconds worth of film. Yeah, that it, something about that felt like they literally. I mean, I, clearly they intended to shoot it, but on the other hand, like uh, shoot the film. I mean, but I mean, for to what end? Like it didn't do. It literally did nothing. Right. And, and, not and only yelling, the, everybody get down. Okay, the Ashrak would have gotten down. Yeah, and it was also so ineffective as to clearly not be consequential to the buildings that he was literally firing it into. It's yeah, like, I mean, you know, like... Um, the, whole, the whole let's protect the gate thing um, struck me as... Uh, not that they needed to protect the gate, but... Um, we're just going to put 40 bodies around the gate. Um, where is the DHD? Because yeah. he ain't doing nothing with the gate That's, and, yeah. until he I gets was, the yeah, DHD. Um, and um, to some degree, you know, you were so clustered there that, you know, if if he did attack, if the Ashrak actually did attack... Uh, which might not have been the smartest thing for the Ashtrak to do. He probably would have been far better off just kind of hanging out in the, the uh, um, woods for a little while longer. But that's beside the point. Not really, but it's beside this point. Um, you know, so like that whole process, uh, you were inviting people to shoot other people. Um, and it just, it strikes me that O'Neill would have been able to find another way. I don't believe that Peter DeLuise's strength is in military tactics. <laughs> You're probably right. 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 It, it was it was a great um it was a great way to impart uh an urgency. Uh you know, to to have the concept of uh you know uh what do they call that in football? They call it like flooding the box, I think is what they call it, where um right, where you have everybody in one spot. And that's because you are 98% certain that the attack is going to come into that one spot. And so, yeah, there will be a form of attrition in the form of like, y- y- this is this is not a good way to go about this. But it is the most assured way that you will prevent a single person from getting through that gate. Except for, as you rightly point out, you don't do anything without engaging with the DHD first. Right. So, yeah, realistically, what you really should have had is that you should have had um, maybe a couple of lines worth of uh, weaponry uh, aimed at the DHD, and you declare the DHD a no-man zone. Like, anything yeah. that's in there is about to be destroyed. And so the minute that the gate starts dialing, you light it up. Well, um, and you could have done that with a zillion Zat gun. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, right? yes. Because yes, if you had, exactly. because the, I mean, you know, send some of your Zat guns around the gate itself. Sure. Um, 100% agree. You know, so that, agreed. you know, because we have seen it that, that somebody could connect a power source to the gate and dial it manually. Okay. Yes, that's true. But more than likely, the way this person is going to get off the planet is by using the DHD. 
Yep. Which means, since the DHD is over here and the gate is over there, point your weapons and stuff at the DHD zone. And yep. specifically the Zat guns, probably, because the other ones are more powerful and are likely to um, damage the DHD, and you don't want that. You know, it occurs to me... Well, two things occur to me. One thing that occurred to me as you were talking, and I definitely want to come back to it. Let's stick a pin in the relationship between the Tok'ra and the Jaffa. Okay. All right. But more briefly, or, you know, easier to talk about it faster now, is um, I think this is part of the reason why I was also enjoying the tension half of the episode rather than the fighting half of the episode. Because if you stare too long at the fighting half of the episode, things start to fall apart pretty fast. Yeah. Um. Uh, you, you know, like if uh, an assassin who is using stealth uh, attempting to brute force his way through the gate, that doesn't sound very smart at all. Um, we, you and me, we came up with a very more, you know, a much more plausible way to defend the gate dialing up, which surely, you know, surely would have been used if this were an actual situation. But, you know, it's television, so we wanted to make it look good, blah, 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 blah. But in that case, the assassin who is highly trained and clearly has the upper hand as far as stealth is concerned, that person probably would figure out pretty quickly. They're going to be there for six weeks along with everybody else while they're, while, while, while everyone's trying to search for this assassin. But so long as he stays quiet, eventually, eventually they're going to say, maybe he died. Maybe something happened and they're going to dial out. Yeah. And that's when you leave. So yeah, you're stuck for a while, but well, You're willing and, to take that. And there there's there are, you know, I mean, we know that this guy doesn't hide his footprints. Right. You know. So if I am going to protect the area, then I am going to churn up the soil so that footprints become very oh, yeah. easily yeah, noticeable. So many yes. Again um, though, Deluise probably is not very renowned for his tactical thinking and yeah. or maybe better to the point look we got we got a 40 minute television story and 20 minutes of it is going to be devoted towards the punchy punchy part so yeah so um yeah uh, it, it's it's enjoyable to watch um but at the same time it's full of a lot of holes and yeah, what makes don't... this episode really um really uh sing is the beginning part um, and then, of course, Braytac saving the day at the end is yeah. nice. Yeah. Now, I wanted to come back to the relationship between the Jaffa, the Free Jaffa, and the Tok'ra. Okay. Because in, um, shoot, what was the name of the episode that we just saw recently where there was a Tok'ra agent uh, posing as a system lord? Um, God assassinated. The other guys. Oh, the other guys, Constant. of course. Duh. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's right. That was literally just last week. In last week's episode, a fifth column of Jaffa, which was referenced in this episode, is operating within the Gulwuld ranks and assisting the Tok'ra, as was revealed in last week's episode. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I, again, I don't want to stare at this too long because I'm not really actually trying to perfectly square it, but... Uh, it did just occur to me, wait a minute, we just saw uh, a Tok'ra and Jaffa working hand in hand, and the Jaffa died, and so did the Tok'ra. And, you know, like, like, in last week's episode, it was a plot device to move the thing forward to to actually tell the story of 
you know, the other guys. Right. But in this week's episode, it's a central idea, which is really important to the plot of this episode and the meta narrative overall, which is these two groups don't actually like each other all that much. Right. And so there's dissonance there. I'm not actually wanting to try to harmonize it necessarily. I'm not going to look too deeply into that one. I'm just, it, it just occurred to me and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. We, 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 we just got done seeing a bit more harmony uh, than was implied here, though. I like this story better because this story is more realistic. Yeah. All things considered. You know, and as I was watching the commentary for this episode, um, uh, Peter DeLuise mentioned that this is an episode that is about racism, right? That the, the, the uh, distrust of the race of Jaffa or Topra yeah. on either side um, is what he is addressing in this episode. Um and while I very much appreciate the the attempt and even the the vision that these two groups can come together, mm-hmm. um, I am concerned on a number of levels with this episode. Um, one, um, a when you well, let's go internally first, right? So, sure. um, if two groups who are at odds together, and this is beyond racism per se, mm-hmm. um, but if they're at odds together, is the only way to bring them together to find a different bad guy for them to hate? Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, now, the sad reality is when you look at our life together as humans, um, that tends to be what we do. But I would love to envision a time where we as humans could come together uh, as different people and find a, an allegiance, a, a commonality, a connection, a bond that isn't predicated on there's somebody else that's even more different than us that we need to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so there's that. And I don't know... I don't know if I have much more to say about that, but that's my hope. And in this episode, while I see the reality of it, I also see a despair in it. That's part, and I know you have a second point. That's part of the reason why I was kind of saying, like, um, I can't remember how I phrased it, but something to the tune of, like, I, was, I did like Braytac's speech at the end, but it was because I was hoping it was basically saying... Uh, you know, we are rallying around a negative, which won't sustain us. He didn't quite say it like that, but I view, I, I believe that when you're rallying around a negative, that is, a, that is an unsustainable thing. Yep. However, it gives you the chance to build a positive, right? It, it, it allows for the conversations to take place so that you can now be rallied around a positive identity rather than a negative identity. I, I However, that's me with reading that into it. to a point. Um, and here's the catch is that in human society, what we have seen throughout the millennia of pretty much any cultural societies uh, is that when two groups who are different uh, come together because there is a common enemy, they come together for the length of that common yeah. enemy. And then they are so intent on dealing with the common enemy that they don't take this time of yeah, being friends to 
actually become friends. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that it, it still is two tribes attacking one tribe, and it, there isn't the eventual de- development of two tribes developing into one cohesive tribe with multiple parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to note as we talk about racism in this episode is that while it is true that there is tension and distrust and dislike uh, based solely pretty much on uh, the you know beginnings of the other side between the Jaffa specifically and the Tokra, uh, the power dynamics are you know sufficiently different that it is we must be careful when we are drawing parallels between this episode and our current life together. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. The, because, you know, the Tok'ra, while being Gua'uld, to some degree, but not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly have a sense of power over the Jaffa, who have been enslaved by the Gua'uld, but that is not commensurate to uh, the the racism, even in this country, that we experience. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and and you know there is still a sufficient power difference between specifically white people and black people in this country. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That yes. that is not um, reflected or mirrored in this episode. Right. Uh, and so because that is not mirrored and is not addressed, this episode becomes one that invites us to think about racism but is also not one that uh, is going to give us a lot of fodder to chew on because there are sufficiently enough pieces that I believe are different. Yep. Yeah. The, um, when you mentioned that DeLuise says that this is an episode about racism, that actually literally caught me by surprise. Um, I thought this was an episode about politics. Um, and it's easy for those ideas to intersect in a lot of ways, a ton of ways. Because when I'm saying politics, as I mentioned, I'm talking about little p. I'm talking about the the, the concept of the body politic and its interactions with itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, uh, this was uh, an, an observation of uh, two groups of people that hold the keys to their own destiny interacting with each other. Um, and that matters. Like, that's an, that's an interesting question to talk about. When you have groups of people who have the capacity to exert power in their own lives, power being the ability to affect or prevent change, when you have these groups that have the ability to affect or prevent change within their own lives, and they need to intersect their, in their ideas of how to do it into something that resembles a cord that is then stronger as a result, how does that get done? It's an extremely interesting question, and I love thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's a different question than how does one group of people who have subjugated another reconcile that subjugation over time? And that's a question of racism. Yeah. Now, there is more to it. Now, let me rephrase that. That's a question of American racism, and American racism looks similar to other racisms in the world. But, you know, I, I can't speak definitively to... Uh, to the Grecian, the ancient Grecian tendency to be taking a look at uh, 
uh, uh, you know, Germanic peoples and and far and the far African peoples as being uh, uh, people that just go bar bar bar, and so they came up with the word bar barbarians. Like that was a racism in itself. I can't speak to the racism of the Ottoman Turks deciding that the Armenians were a great group of people to go slaughter wholesale. Like mm-hmm. you know, I th- that's similar but different. I live and grow up grew up in American racism, and in American racism, there is a power dynamic that has to be accounted for, and you don't do a good job talking about it if you ignore the power dynamic that you have to account for. Right. And this is an episode that does, I mean, that really doesn't have a power dynamic, significant power dynamic differential between the Tok'ra and the Jaffa. Right. Um, If this were a Gua'uld group, specifically, and not Tok'ra, and Jaffa, perhaps we might be able to begin that process. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But even that (laughs) brings um, challenges. Yeah, that one... Yeah, then, but then, yeah, that, but that's also a poor metaphor to try to impose upon it because we've established the Gua'uld as being, um, uh, you know, borderline uh, homogenous in their thinking, borderline. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's something about that situation. They're, they're too flat. Right. Uh, you also, know, even that's a bad the, try to, you know, the, try, to, try to talk about this. The Gua Wuld in that sense are, in terms of the story, demonstrably evil. Yes. And while I would say that racism is demonstrably evil, mm-hmm. it is too far to say that in this analogy, white people are evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're, right. You're, 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 yeah. It um, falls apart way too fast. It fa- if you're yeah. willing. If you're willing to use the metaphor to talk about the Gould represent an idea, then we're on to something. But then you're getting real you're getting real heady there. Like it's real hard to watch a person portray another individual and know that what you're looking at is a metaphor for an idea, not a person. And here is where um where this episode does have power to assist us, uh, specifically in the relationship between Braytac and Malik who are both leaders of their people, um, who both feel the tension in their own bodies uh, of these two groups, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like they recognize that their underlings, for lack of a better term, have problems with the other guys' underlings, but we're fine. Uh, You know, they feel this tension in themselves. They experience it in themselves, even towards Mm -hmm. the other leaders. And yet, you have Braytac taking that moment, realizing, oh, wait, the bad guy's right here. Boom, Malik, you get out of the way. And he takes that front. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he, he sacrifices himself uh, for the sake of someone he does not like. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then he comes and he is able to do the same thing again. And that kind of behavior on the small scale is something that can translate into our lives today. Is that how can we look at people we might not like, which may or may not be issues of racism or not, I mean, mm-hmm. either way, and can we find a way to, like Braytech, uh, sacrifice ourselves for the sake of them, and subsequently, like Malik, 
who at the end recognizes what Braytac does and honors that. Mm -hmm. And so those steps there are legitimate steps for us, at least on the microscopic level, in moving forward, even if it doesn't directly address the systemic issues of, in our case, racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. There you go. Yep. All right. Is there anything else you have to say? Not for this one. Okay. This one was pretty fun. All right. I liked it. Well, then, uh, you have seven chevrons to choose from. You you actually do have more than seven, uh, because going higher than seven has been deemed legitimate. We Um, have established that this could be an eight chevron chevron episode. Indeed, we have. So I'm going to ask you, out of seven chevrons, Mm -hmm. how many are you going to give it? So, um... I liked I liked the political tension part of the episode, and uh, hearing that Deluise was trying to make this an allegory for racism actually diminishes it for me. So I'm going to ignore that. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm going to pretend that this is an allegory on on politics, which I think has it, I think that this episode is way stronger uh, with that in mind. Um, it does know, fit politics a, better. Yeah, yeah, forming allegiances is is very important, and it's very interesting work, and it's very hard to do, and you have to account for a lot of things, and there's plenty of meat on that bone. You don't need to try to pretend like it's something else um, and do a poor job addressing that something else. So we're going to ignore that. Um, I thought it got, I thought it lost its wind a little bit when it decided to shift gears and turned into a, wait a minute, that's the bad guy. Um, and, you know, I think... <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe O'Neill firing a big gun in slow motion is uh, a decent metaphor for how it kind of lost its way a little in that regard. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, did you really need to do that? Yeah, I don't know if you really needed to do that, but whatever. It's done now. Um, and it, it ended fine. And it ended, it, it ended, I thought it ended strong. Um, but uh, boy, you know, if I view Braytac's speech as uh, something that was supposed to be akin to like... Uh, uh, MLK Jr. speech uh, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It's it it pales, man. It pales in comparison. Sure. Um, again, like I'm just gonna ignore that. This isn't a show about racism. This is a show about politics. Uh, and so I'm gonna give it a five out of seven. Um, if it had stuck to just letting this be an interesting show about people, I probably would have given it a six. And if it had done a supremely good job of it, I probably would have given it a seven. But it didn't. It decided to try to be an adventure show there, and that's not a profound sin, but kind of ticked, kind of knocked it down a little bit for me. So sure. five out of seven. Yeah. How about you? Um, you know, I want to agree with you on that five. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an episode that uh, it does good in continuing the meta narrative and putting more building blocks for our characters to dance in. Uh, we have an alpha site. We didn't even talk about that. Um, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just a place where people are, but they're like establishing a base there. Uh That's significant. Um, You know, we've got Jaffa there. We've got now Tok'ra there. Um, You know, the Anubis is becoming more and more of a problem for all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. All of that's going on. Um, The, I kind of felt the last line of the episode that, that Braytech gives is a little bit cheesy. But I think that Tony Amendola does a great job of delivering it so that it works. I liken that to uh, Samwise Gamgee saying, because there's some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. 
Uh, It's a cheesy line, but when you have an actor in a moment who can deliver it well, it works. Yep. And so I will give that to this. Um, You are right. It kind of, you know, the first half brings a lot of tension, and then it turns into an action movie, and then we have bang, 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 bang. Don't think too hard, and you'll be fine. And as soon as you start thinking hard, uh, the tactics and responses begin (laughs) to fall apart. Yes. (laughs) yep so with all of that i'll give it a five yep all right yeah so we need to look at our predictions let's take a look so when i glanced at twitter i didn't see any i'm gonna check again and nope which is fine that's fine okay it's all good it's all good we don't have to do this on twitter it's fine we can we can it totally works make it work make it work just or email it's fine don't worry about it. All right. Well, we do have some emails, but we're going to start with the, the Facebook. The Facebooks. The okay. Facebooks. Uh, Sean begins by saying... Hi, Sean. A bit of a Tokra Jaffa tension? Sure, why not? It's a new story and familiar characters and the introduction of a new threat. This is this one is a six from me, and I predict mm. a five from Brent and a five and a half yes. from Zach. Ooh. Ooh. Very, very close there, Sean. Very close. Super close. Uh, Warren says... Hi, Warren. A new bad guy? What's not to like slash hate? This is a toss-up between a six and a seven, so I go six and a Mm -hmm. half, and I predict six all around for Brent and Zach. That's close. Yeah. That is close. Yep. Good job. Good job. All right, we have Evan. Hi, Evan. Evan says, Why do the Gua'uld have these hyper-elite assassins waiting in the wings, and why don't they deploy them more often? Well, right. the answer to that lies in the social Darwinism at the heart of Gua'uld society. It's hard to train a super killer in this society that isn't going to turn around and murder you to and become you. king of the heap. <laughs> One could extrapolate that Ra probably commanded enough loyalty to use these guys more often just, though, just through longevity of his reign, which could explain why a race that has seemed like relative pushovers controls oh. so much space. As for the episode itself, I enjoy it. I like that there is tension between the three allies, especially considering their respective backgrounds. Same race as the oppressors, former slave drivers, and trusted slaves, and newcomers who sympathize more with the slaves than either of the other two races. Uh Uh-huh. He continues... You get the feeling at the end that the tension still exists, but the relationship can at least be productive. That's 100%. Mm-hmm. Also, the SGC finally uses an off-world site for stuff that should be done off-world. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, I've got an idea. How about the link between Earth and the Alpha site? Well, let's, let's not, we don't have to use the Alpha site. We can use someplace else. Move everything important to the other place and then do the operations from the other place. Yeah. Um, then somebody did mention, why didn't they bother putting a, an iris on the alpha site gate? I was wondering that myself. Uh, I'm wondering if it's a relatively young base. Um, yes, now, that's very that sensible. said that they were able to put the trinium uh, iris on the uh, base in Children of the Gods in 24 hours. So, I mean, who knows? Yeah. In any case, uh, Evan suggests, he predicts six and a half from me and a six from you. Yep, that's close. Oh, one thing that Evan brought up that I didn't quite think of until he brought it up. Um, 
perhaps our heroes unwittingly uh, created the um, gangland war that we see, which that's a loaded term, but I meant it very specifically. Uh, Ra dies and all of a sudden, uh, you know, all these ghoul which we have then successfully been pushing over, uh, think to themselves that they have a chance to become the new Ra. So maybe we just accidentally nuked the super biggest, baddest Guauld, who was able to just lock it down for millennia, just mm-hmm. absolutely lock it down for millennia, and then and then we accidentally send up the bomb in a way it's like wait wait what it's like rogue chess where like you <laughs> you're able to actually beat somebody who knows a lot more about chess than you do because you're just a chaos agent and they didn't see it coming, um, and you know then that precipitated the events of the television series of you know. Why is this ghoul such a bad guy? Look, they just die. Boop. And this one dies too. Boop. And that one too. Boop. Yeah. Boop. 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 <laughs> it was an interesting thought. I liked it. All right. Uh, Kimberly says. Hi, Kimberly. More world building. Lots of politics and Brentech. I mean, Braytech being his spry 133 <laughs> plus year old self with the kill shot. Mm-hmm. Fives yes. for Brent and Zach. Hey, Kimberly, Kimberly you got, got it. it right. Woo. Do you know what this means? I'm like Does 80% sure I'm remembering this. No, Kimberly and David are now tied. Ah, yes, they're tied. All right. Mm-hmm. David, you have a chance. You haven't gotten to nope. your prediction yet. Nope. All right. We have Tim. Hi, Tim. Tim says, I would give this episode a four. It is just fine. It's it just helps fine. move the meta story. And if it wasn't for that, I think it would be a three. Yeah, I could see if it didn't do anything for the story, it would be like, what's going on here? Yeah, my guess is that Brent will dislike the deus ex machina of Braytac not being dead and getting back at just the right time, even <laughs> more than I do, and give it a three. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, Tim, I see you, and I saw that, and I knew it as soon as he went into the ferns. It's like, he's not dead. He's <laughs> totally coming back. But, uh, yeah, that, that it was Braytac that fired the last shot was like... I'm glad I'm glad people like it. That's nice. That's good. It's good that people like it. Uh, Tim predicts that I uh, I think Zach will like it a little better and give it a five. Yep. 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 All right. And we have Dan. Hi, Dan. Love this, Is this one. This Dan's first time. I don't think we've heard from Dan before. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I can't remember. Well, well welcome, Dan. Dan. Love this one. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love the dynamic and tension between all parties as Tokra, Jaffa, and Human all come together for the first time. Like all relationships, it's difficult at first, but as Bogey would say, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) He continues. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The action runs through the entire episode, sometimes even without anyone doing anything. Of course, Jack with his wonderful snark, the deadpan teal stop... Also, someone, <laughs> or dare I say it, something always has me laughing. I, I, mm-hmm. I'll read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, helps break the tension, but to see our three factions of good guys working together for the first time is just one of those moments I love. He continues, lessons to be learned. One, when explaining things to Jack, just give him what he needs. <laughs> yes. He doesn't care about the wavelength. Will it be able to do the thing that I want it to do? Yes. Okay, good enough. Moving on. Yes. Yes. All right. Number two. 
the Tok'ra clearly do not understand the meaning of the word temporary. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because they live their entire life in the, in, in the version of temporary. Yep. Three, progress reports need to be sent out more frequently than millennia. <laughs> I know when I was in school, it was about every four weeks. Uh, that's funny. Explana- Number five, explanations are always required prior to instigating a large point blank range fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Number six, all GDOs must be placed in a stationary and locked position during an engagement. So here's the thing with the GDOs. No freaking kidding. Yeah. The GDOs are basically a giant remote control that has buttons on it that you press in the code and hit enter, and then it sends a signal through. The GDO by itself does not mean a whole lot if you do not have the code also. I firmly, emphatically, viciously disagree. It is the single weakest point of the entire defense aspect of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. The GDO was a convenient artifact for storytelling, but functionally represents a complete disaster if what you're trying to do is ensure the survivability of the human race. Hmm. Well, (laughs) so so here's the thing, is that if you have a barrier on your gate, which they do, Mm -hmm. you need Mm -hmm. some way of communicating information from one to the other. That is not disagreed upon. And the the thing necessary is some type of code, because you don't Uh, want... you know, this is none of this is wrong. I'm just acknowledging that at that point, the barrier is not the 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 protector. It's the knowledge of the code that's the protector. Precisely. So the GDO itself is uh, not especially Hackable. strong. Um, who cares? They have lost GDOs in the past. Gould probably have a room filled with GDOs by oh, this well, point in time. That's a decent retort. That's a decent retort. So what is special about Major Pierce's GDO? Yeah. Okay. I okay. Fine. I took the bait, but I hear you. All right. In any case, um, it still represents the weakest point of the defense. Sure. It's like when your bank demands that you have a 15 character long alphanumeric password that you also then have to set a four digit pin for when you call tech support or when you call customer support that lets you change the password. At that point, your password is the four digit pin. Because you call up tech support and you're like, my pin is do-do-do. And they say, great, let me reset your password. There you go. So, Have a nice day. So what's your pin? Yeah. Oh. That's it. Okay. Y-E-A-H. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, <laughs> Dan continues. He's got a, a yes. point seven. Should things point go seven. <laughs> should things go badly when facing an invisible opponent, get the biggest gun you can and fire oh, wildly gosh. in a circle, regardless of how many people are in the way... I might have overthought that one. <laughs> Buildings. Like, he's firing. I don't know how big the rounds were, right? It was a big, big, big gun, but he's, like, firing it into the buildings. It's like, surely there's stuff inside there that you don't want shot. The, yeah. There's the, the just, that's a, yeah. Okay. Dan says, for me, this is a six and a half because it just hits notes I enjoy so much regarding shows yep. of this scale. Nice. I'm thinking Zach will give this a five and a half and Brent mm-hmm. a five. Mostly because my opinion seems to be a little higher than the norms for this one. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. All right. I get it. Um, 
so Tim says, Tim responds to Dan and says, I think your rating may be a little bit higher than everyone else, but not by much. Whereas I look to be the Debbie Downer in this case, I would give it a three if it wasn't for how it pushes the meta narrative forward. Dan replies, like I said, this episode just hits the right spots for me. Mm-hmm. Um, he truly enjoys it. Yep. Nice. So there you go. We now have some emails. Last yes. I looked, we had a couple. And we still have a couple. We have one from Aunt Suze. Hey, Aunt Susie. All right. She says, Glad to get back to the team working together with the Toker and the Jaffa, playing the part of the Red Shirts this week. Mm-hmm. While Jack's 360-degree firing rotation was cool, he might have actually hit something if his firing pattern hadn't been so predictable. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, too. This, ep- <laughs> this episode foreshadows the difficulty SGC is going to have long-term trying to maintain an alliance between constantly quibbling allies. Uh, I really liked the solid writing of Jax and Jacob's discussion about their shared experience of owing their lives to a symbiote and forgiveness for its actions. Final thought, why did the writers decide to sideline Jonas for this episode? Even I could have found something for him to do, like help Sam with the science stuff. That is kind of, well, I mean, it might have just been availability. Could have been. Who knows? Yep. Um, there might have been a contract thing going on there that, that you get this many episodes and you get that many episodes Oh, that off. could be too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I give it a five for being back on track with a team working together to solve a locked door murder mystery. After coming down off the high of last week's sevens, I bet Brent and Zach are going to give it a more judicious five. Did she get it right? She got it right. You got it hey, right. Aunt Susie. Woo-hoo. Good job, Woo-hoo. Aunt Susie. Well done. Woo. Nice. All right, that's two correct predictions. Two correct predictions on this one. Yeah, dang. Okay, so now we have David, who... uh, Hi, David. uh, Starts by saying... So he shows this little meme picture, and this is the one of of the the woman who is shouting and pointing a finger, and on the other side is the cat eating food. Yes. Just kind of, you know, right? It's just, you're not a real Chevron bias buffer. You're an Ashrak disguised as a cat. (laughs) Zach. Oh no, the go- Anubis is getting clever. He's sending his assassins disguised as pets. <laughs> you know, that would actually make a certain amount of sense. We all love our pets and think they're all cuddly and cute and wonderful. And if and all if of a people- sudden they turned into vicious yeah. uh, claw creed and teeth that, that, that scratch and claw and bite us after we have pet them once too many, we would still forgive them, even though yes. we shouldn't. Yes. Yes, that's that's that that is a perfect plan. I'm surprised Anubis hasn't thought of it yet. Yeah, I know. All right, so this is what he actually has to say. Mm-hmm. Fun episode with just a bit of borrowing from Predator. Questions to ponder: Why are they guarding an inactive gate? Guard the DHD instead. Yes, <laughs> that's what we said. Absolutely. Are all the background Jaffa muscle-bound bodybuilders? Uh, speaking yes. role Jaffa are just dudes, not including Teal'c, whereas most of the others are of Schwarzenegger-esque proportions. Where are the weights Do they pump Naquita in their spare time? Well, if by pump Naquita you mean pump barbells made out of Naquita, then yes. Naturally. Ah. Oh, yeah. 
I am Hans and Franz together. And we are here to pump you up. Oh, yeah, man. Okay, moving on. I would have thought that O'Neill's BFG 9000 gun would have done <laughs> more damage. You're right. It was With very... Gun like that, it's like, a, he's like, bang, yeah. bang, 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 bang. And there is no damage commensurate to the building of a giant BFG 9000. That's true. Uh, with that slow-mo action, there should have been mass destruction and explosions and stuff. It would have been more fun. Yeah. Uh, it just goes to show that the BFG 9000 was not necessary. Yeah, it was completely ineffectual. Um, he goes, after all, the Ashrek was just some guy in a funny hat, right? I do. Then there was that, but whatever. Yeah. You know. um, did all that really unite the Jaffa and Tok'ra and Tauri? The Jaffa are still mostly jerks with shooty sticks. The Tok'ra are still a-holes with snakes in their heads. And the Tauri are still trigger-happy humans. <laughs> it's not like every Jaffa, Tok'ra, and Tauri in the galaxy were gathered together in this one spot to make a valiant stand against insurmountable odds. It's a metaphor, David. It's a metaphor. Or is it a simile? Well, it's not like something. Well, he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> He did say it's not like every Jaffa, Tok'ra, and Tauri. So it's like yeah. the opposite of a simile. So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, he says, Brent will give this five chevrons for the SG-1 and friends versus Predator vibe. Yeah. Zach will give it five and a half yeah. chevrons because oh! he'd really like O'Neill's BFG-9000 in the RPG <laughs> he will eventually be playing. Okay, that I will 100% agree with. Having that BFG 9000 gun in an RPG game would be absolutely delightful. Oh, yeah. 100%. If it did something. Ooh, but maybe that's a super... It, maybe, that's, maybe that's what it is. The BFG 9000 is a weapon that does nothing but looks cool. And if you can find a way to incorporate a thing that does nothing but looks cool in a way for an RPG that actually moves the game forward, that's the fun. Hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've used ball bearings in my D&D game to great effect. Well, ball bearings can be greatly used. Yeah, but they aren't good weapons. Well, you know, if you throw them at people hard enough, they'd be great weapons. I mean, that's basically my what a cleric, musket ball is. My cleric can't throw them that fast. Well, that's because your cleric isn't strong enough. Remind me to tell you the time about we used the ball bearings one time to create a disco floor. It was great. Okay. Uh, that'd be, that'd, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this story. <laughs> Well, those are our predictions. Congratulations to those of you who got them right. And thank you, yes. everybody, for sending in your predictions and your thoughts. I love them. Yes. Okay, Brent. Yeah. We need to put allegiance in our rearview mirror and move forward to what is next. And we are yeah. moving forward to Cure. Cure. And I ask you, what is Cure all about? Oh, what is Cure about? All right. Well, let's see here. Cure. Let's see. Next time on Stargate SG-1, the SG-1 team travel through the gate to find themselves in a strange world. They find themselves in an area that seems to look like Earth, but is distinctly different. And they are... Greeted by a strange-looking person with wild and crazy hair. And this person goes by the name of, of Robert. 
And Rogue leads them to a particular area and says, I have something to share with you. And he proceeds to then pour out his emotions in song form in front of them, even though nobody asked him to do that. And in doing so, they realize that they are in a world that seems to be dominated by arts, music, and really emotional people wearing eyeliner. And as they gather together this information, they realize that they have somehow been sucked into a place that resembles the 1980s new wave band, The Cure. Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick. The one that makes me scream, she says. The one that makes me laugh, she says. And threw her arms around my neck. Show me how you do it, and I promise you, I promise you! No, I promise to. And I promise to. I promise to run away with you. Hmm. I'll run away with you. Join us next time on Stargate SG-1 as we listen to the dulcet towns of Robert Smith and The Cure on the episode Cure. Oh, boy. Hey, Zach, is this an episode about uh, a band in England making music? Sure. It's about The Cure? Oh, sweet. It is, a, it is about a cure. Well, I'm talking about is it about the uh, cure? Oh, 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 no, no, no! You're, of course not. You're completely wrong. Uh, nuts. Uh, uh, now, I will say, I will say that you started off strong. The SG1 team do go to a strange through the gate to a strange new world, and they meet other people. So, right yes. there, you got it. You nailed it. Okay. And but then it started, and then you started losing your way. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. Okay, oh, so shall we watch like the promo it. that David made for us? Yes, I am ready to watch right, the promo. Me too. I'm hitting play now. Next time on Stargate SG-1. That looks like a brilliant and savvy negotiator. We must be at our best to match the challenge. Howdy, folks! On the planet Angara, <laughs> an amazing discovery has been made. It is our greatest scientific discovery. Tritonin makes our immune systems impervious to any ailment. Wow. Oh. We live in perfect health. I do not wish to be overheard like, uh, by paying our security like contingent. There is something you need to know about the Tritonin. What danger lurks when the truth behind their discovery is oh, made known? Wait, do you really understand the risks involved? We have been using the same method to produce tritonin for nearly 30 years. We take every precaution possible to protect our people. Except for those that it's die. all next time on Stargate oh, oh, SG-1. Oh, are they, are they, are they, are they, are they, what was that? Well, we will have to wait till next week to find out what are they that was. Are they milking a ghoul-wold? You know, I'm not going to answer that question. No, they're not milking the ghoul-wold. So, yes, I'll answer that question. Have any, has anybody thought about that? How do they... Oh, well, I okay, guess I'm not How, how do you milk a lizard? I mean, you don't because they're not mammals. Exactly. But the ghouls aren't lizards. They're reptiles of some variety. I mean, we call them snakes. They might have nipples. I, I suppose. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> Hey, uh, Zach, let's wrap this thing up. All right. Thank you, David, for the promo. I appreciate it. Thanks, David.
tell us what you think. Are gooled reptiles, or are they some sort of quasi-mammal, mammalian thingamabobber, whatever? Hey, I don't know. Do, we haven't established that yet. You know, whatever. So let us know what you think. Email us at walkingthroughstargate at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Stargate Walking. Of course, go to Walking Through the Stargate Facebook page and group. Hit all of those buttons to smash them to say follow, like, and subscribe, boop, 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 boop. and all of those things, and join. Mm-hmm. And and then go to patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. And if this is your jam, go ahead and throw us some shekels or two, if you yeah. want. And with that... Good stuff. I say I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home.